Adam and Eve were the first of humanity. What day were they created? You guys remember? Six. The sixth day, yeah. What was the entity that enticed them to disobey God? The serpent. Anybody remember the Hebrew word for the serpent? Nachash. Nachash, yeah, which is also could be translated as what? Does anybody remember Snake. that? Snake, yeah, what else could it be? A shining one, or it's oftentimes used as copper or brass in the Hebrew Bible as well. What does he entice them to do? Go against God's word, yeah, which, and, and how did that play out? Yeah, how did it play out? How were they disobedient? What did their disobedience look like? They disobeyed a dietary law, right? Yeah. They disobeyed a dietary law. What was the dietary law? Yeah, you can eat of all of this. Sometimes, you know, I I eat biblically kosher, right? And many of you do as well. And I think it's good and healthy and every human should do that. But many times what people find out of that, find that out about me, especially in the South, you know, at work, especially guys will come to me and they'll say, you don't, wait a second, you know, you don't eat pork in Southern Alabama, you know, and like, no, they're like, what do you eat? You know? I was like, well, there's, I mean, you got all kinds of stuff. There's wonderful things I could still eat. But we sometimes think that, you know, obeying God is hard and it's, it's difficult and it's very limiting and restrictive. And that's just so far from the truth. So Adam and Eve were told, you have all of this stuff, this variety to choose from. Just don't eat of this thing. And it was the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it was a dietary law. But the one way that the Nachash, the serpent, weaseled his way into uh, enticing them, when he, he said he questioned God's word. And he said, did God really say, right? And then that produced disobedience in them. That produced exile. And exile brought death. And exile is, is a form of death. Anytime you're exiled from God's presence, it's a form of death. It's a slow form of death. And then um, years and years later, we get, we get this man, Avraham. Does anybody remember what Avraham means? The name, Avraham. Avraham. Mike, remember what? The father of many. Yeah, the great father, Avraham. The father of many. And he's given a promise that he's going to have a land and he's going to have a people and he's gonna, those two will eclipse each other, even though he was childless and he was, a, he was a nomad, so to speak. He didn't have either of those, but he was given a promise. And then we see he marries Sarah, and, and you guys kind of know how the story plays out. And then they give birth to the second of the three patriarchs, so we call them patriarchs of our faith. So it goes Abraham, and then who was next? Isaac, or Yitzchak in Hebrew, which means what? Laughter. Yeah, and then he gives birth to who? Yeah. Jacob in English or in Hebrew, Yaakov, Yaakov, which means the one who's grabbing the heel. And I'm leaving out a lot of details here, but Jacob is a twin brother of who? Esau. And Esau means he who is fully formed. And it comes from the Hebrew root Asa, which means to be. There it is. And so he's like just fully formed. So you got Jacob and Esau. There are these two twins that are born together, but Jacob's grabbing the heel of Esau, the grabber of the heel, the one who seizes an opportunity, even if sometimes it's a little bit shady to do so. That's kind of the essence that he's, he's given, the, the name, the one who supplants. And it says that Esau was a man of the what? Field. He was a man of the field, but Jacob was a man who did what? He dwelt in the tents, which is a euphemism, an idiomatic phrase, which meant that he, he studies... He studies the oracles of God. He's in the tents and he's, he's passing down this righteous legacy. And these, these, these oracles that were given to, all the way back to Adam and Eve. 
and are passed down generations, and he's preserving that. Um, so he's a little bit more connected to the, the, his, his relationship with the creator, whereas Esau is a man who's like a man of the flesh, and he's hot-tempered, and he's a man who's out hunting, right? And uh, eventually, long story short, Jacob really makes Esau mad. He has to run. He's on the run for his life. He flees to the household of who? Laban. And Laban says, yeah, you can have my daughter. Here's my daughter. But then he gives, he, he wants Rachel, but who does he give him instead? Leah. 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 Yeah. And then he says, okay, well, fine. I'll give you Rachel, the one you really wanted, but you got to work for me for how many more years? Seven. Seven years. Yeah. So he's under Laban's control and under his household for a total of 20 years, it's going to turn out. 20 years. And Laban is even more manipulative and deceitful than Jacob was. And he gets a taste of his own medicine. And, and then eventually he comes to his senses and says, well, I've got to get out of here. I've got to follow the promises and, and go towards the promises that were given to my father and my grandfather, Abraham and Isaac. So I've got to go to the land of Canaan. But Laban doesn't want that to happen because Laban is prospering with Jacob being in his household. He's like, I can't let you go. Economically speaking, we're thriving because of you. And we will see that play out as the people of Israel return to their land in the end times, as is happening now, that the nations that greatly profited economically from the Jewish people living within their borders, suddenly they won't be as prosperous. Um, interesting thing you can look at if you like history is um, uh, some of the technological breakthroughs that happened in the United States of America as a result of us bringing in the Jewish European Jewry during the Holocaust, both in aeronautics, uh, medicine, um, uh, space flight, the list goes on, all kinds of breakthroughs. Albert Einstein is one of them. Um, but lots of breakthroughs uh, that, that were brought to the shores of the United States of America because of our willingness to bring them in. Now, we may have had some nefarious motives in doing so, but we did, and we prospered greatly. And as we lose that, the people of God's blessing and the vehicle of his blessing, as if they leave our country, or if we do something stupid and kick them out, then we will lose that blessing economically as well. We'll see that with Laban's household. He wanted to hold on to them so that, that he could continue to be blessed and prosper economically and in wealth. He was very selfish that way. So they leave, and then um, kind of a side trail here. Remember, um, he... he Laban chases him down and he's like, where are you going? You left in the dead of night. Why are we going to do this this way? Right. And he says, and, and by the way, who stole my household? What? Idols. idols. And then Jacob's like, oh, no one stole your household idols. And in fact, if anyone in my household under my care stole your household, idols, I, they will be cursed to death. They will surely die, which is a riff back to eating the fruit. They will surely die. It's the seizing of the fruit. It's that curse of death. And he brings that unknowingly on his, on his wife, Rachel, because she stole the household idols. So they go on their way, and um, that's kind of where we pick up. I know I just I super glossed over the story, but that pick, that's where we pick up in Genesis chapter, um, in chapter 33. I think I said 32 earlier, but chapter 33. And you might remember another, another really important feature of Genesis chapter 32 is that Jacob is is um gets word that esau is coming towards him esau his his brother that was vowed to kill him is coming with coming towards him with how many men four four hundred men and is vowing to kill am i right four hundred yeah. okay i see people looking at me for less four hundred men are and and 
he, he sends all his people and his livestock and his animals out ahead in different orders. And he stays back. And it says, and, and Patrick did a good job t- teaching on this last week. He stays back in the, the river called the Yavok. Does anybody remember the meaning of that? Uh, Patrick brought it out last week. The Yavok. Empty. Yeah, empty. Or it could also mean dusty. With, if a river is empty, it's going to be dusty, right? So they're there in this place. He's there in this place of emptiness and dustiness. And he wrestles with, uh, the, the Hebrew Bible calls it some ish, some man. But then it goes on and it, it says that Jacob renamed that place Paniel, that I saw the face of El, Elohim, and I lived to tell about it. So... Was it a Ish? Was it Esau? Was it the angel? Was it God in flesh? Those are the kinds of things. And I, um, in, in, in Hosea 12, your answer should be found in a, a Hosea 12. If you want to read Hosea 12, 1 through 4, there's your answer to that question. But let's keep going to Genesis 33, and we'll pick up the story here. Remember, uh, the, the Ish that he wrestles with in this river changes his name from Jacob to what? Israel, Yisrael, which means, Yeshar means to struggle with, to strive with. And El is short for God. Yeshar El or Yisrael is what his name becomes, the one who struggles with God. And he takes on kind of this new name, which I would argue he's had this whole time. But it says in chapter 33, Yaakov, Jacob, raised his eyes and looked out, and there was Esav coming with 400 men. So, Yaakov, now why does it call him Israel here? You're going to see these names are used interchangeably throughout the rest of this story. So, Yaakov divided the children between Leah, Rachel, and her, and her children, uh, and I'm sorry, and her two slave girls, putting the slave girls and their children first, Leah and her children second, and Rachel and Yosef last. Notice this is the only of his sons that is named explicitly is Yosef, which speaks to his favor for Yosef of all his other sons. Then he himself passed on ahead, and he prostrated himself on the ground seven times before approaching his brother. See, all it takes when, when brothers are quarreling, brothers and sisters and families, or brothers and sisters and Messiah are quarreling, all it takes usually is for one party to humble themselves, and then it's resolved. And we see here that Jacob is exhibiting some different behavior, isn't he? He's not uh, trying to figure out how to be deceitful. He's not trying to figure out, okay, I fooled him twice, once, I could probably fool him again. No, what is he doing? He's just laying on the ground and he's saying, man, I, in a way, deserve to die, don't I? And my brother is coming with 400 men. The best I can do is try to find favor in his eyes. He's, he's had kind of a change of heart, hasn't he? It says, Esav ran to meet him, hugged him, and threw his arms around his neck and it says Vayishakehu and he shaka he kissed him and they wept it's a beautiful story right of restoration and reconciliation with it was interesting if you were to look at our Hebrew Torah scroll that we have in our cabinet here in our ark if you read this in Hebrew you would see it written like this with six dots above each letter and right to left, Vayishakehu, Vayishakehu, and he kissed him. 
Why are these six dots there and why are they not on top of other words? Why are they? And, and this has perplexed the rabbis and the sages and the, the scribes for decades, or not for, like for centuries, as to why these six dots are there. And there's all kinds of different theories, but one theory which you hear the most like is, is that these are actually a, a, full, uh, uh, a portent, a um, prophetic little hint towards the fact that Esau's heart is really not where it needs to be. That these are actually like teeth marks into the neck, the side of the neck of Jacob. That he's not really reconciling with Jacob. And this is kind of true because if you remember in Numbers chapter 20, the people of Israel left Egypt and they're traveling through the wilderness and they go through the land of Edom, the descendants of Esau. And they're asking for provisions as they're traveling through. But what do the Edomites say? No, you cannot. You cannot even drink from our wells, right? And this, this continues this feud. And we get to 2 Samuel chapter 8 and 1 Chronicles 18. The people of Israel are still warring with the descendants of Esau. So is there true reconciliation between these two brothers? Perhaps. But generationally speaking, there is not reconciliation. That this conflict and this feud continues throughout their generations. And that's why some theorize the scribes put these six dots above this and he kissed him. Now the word shaka to kiss, shaka, it's it's actually um, just as easily translated as to arm someone for battle, to to give weapons to people, to give weapons to someone. It's interesting, right? Because what is a kiss? A kiss is saying I'm putting myself in a very vulnerable position to be intimate with you because I trust you. And Chris and Emily were at our house last night and we were talking about marriage. And marriage is this interesting thing where you're not related blood-wise to each other like a sibling. And Chris was saying, you know, Alana will be my daughter the rest of my life. And there's no changing that. We may have disagreements or fights. There's no changing that. But a husband and wife don't really have that luxury of being connected by bloodline. They shouldn't at least. (laughs) What do they have that connects them? Love, trust. And that, that trust should be birthed out of love. But really, it is just a mutual trust. I will not harm you if you promise not to harm me. And I was telling the analogy, it's like Stacy and I are handcuffed together and it's a special lock. Someone threw the key away. We're stuck. I can make this miserable for the two of us and I can, okay, stretch out your arm. I'll stretch out my arm and I'm going to do my thing. You do your thing. Let's keep separate finances or let's do this. And I got my hobbies. You got your hobbies. You got your friends. I got my friends. You know, we got these different lives over here. And but how much can I get done with my arm being like stretched to its max over that way? Not a whole lot. And our lives become miserable because we're trying to tug each other in our own respective directions. But if I look at this and I say, you know, we're stuck together. How do we make this a beautiful experience for the two of us? How do I pour into this relationship to beautify it in a way that increases trust, which produces in us a, a better representation of the gospel of Messiah and God's love for his people so that people around the world can be drawn to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? That's how we should look at marriage. Now, there are things, obviously, guys, that, that, will, that will necessitate that covenant being, if, if someone doesn't uphold their end of the covenant, 
then someone in the relationship has a right to break out of that covenant. So don't think that, you know, don't, don't look at it that way, but rather I'm, I'm, I'm here with this person, I'm glued to this person, how do I make this more beautiful? But it's, it's all based on trust. And that is what a kiss is. is a, it's a moment of deep, intimate trust. And giving a weapon to someone who is otherwise unarmed is the same thing. It's saying, I'm giving this to you, I trust you. A kiss can be very arming in that way. And you're saying, I'm, I'm getting so intimate with you. Now, we see good kisses in the Bible, and we see bad kisses in the Bible, don't we? And I'm not saying, like, you know, middle school kisses, like, are they a good kisser or not? But rather, the, the motivation behind the kisses are good, and then there's kisses where the motivation is bad. I remember, how was Yeshua betrayed? With a kiss, right? And I would argue that it's probably the same kind of kiss that Esau had here. Same, like, same bite marks, so to speak. But we see lots of different kisses in, in Scripture. But let's keep going. Verse 5. Esav looked up. On seeing the woman and children, he asked, Who are these with you? And Yaakov answered, The children that God has graciously given to your servants. You hear the humility as dripping off of his words there? He's saying, I didn't do any of this. God has given all of this to me. Jacob has really had a change of heart, hasn't he? And the slave girls approached with their children, and they prostrated themselves. Leah, too, and her children approached and prostrated themselves. Last came Yosef and Rachel, Rachel, and they prostrated themselves. And Esau asked, what is the meaning of this procession that I've encountered? And he answered, it is to win my Lord's chen, favor, chen. This is uh, the letters chet nun. This is also Noah's name backwards, Noah. He says to, to win my Lord's favor. And Esau replied, I have plenty already, my brother. Keep your possessions for yourself. And Yaakov said, no, please. If I have won your chen, your favor, then accept my gift. Just seeing your face has been like seeing the Paneel, actually Elohim. Which is, remember, he just called the place where he wrestled with God, Peneel. And here he's saying that seeing your face is like being back in that place where I wrestled with God. Being able to interact with you again, my brother, is like seeing the face of God. How so? In Psalm 133, we all know this, Hinei matov umanayim, shevedachim gamyaka, behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together. Turn with me real fast and, and let's keep reading Psalm 133. Psalm 133. It's a really popular Israeli folk song that we sing sometimes around here. The Hine Mato. But the whole chapter is beautiful. It says, How good and how pleasant it is for brothers to live together in harmony. It's like fragrant oil on the head that runs down over the beard and over the beard of the high priest Aaron. And it flows down on the collar of his robes. Brothers living in harmony, it's like the dew of Hermon that settles on the mountains of Sion. Now, Hermon, if you know your Israeli geography, is way up north. Like way up north of the Galilee, almost to like the, the, the Lebanese border, a modern day border. And that, the dew that settles on that mountain, it's, it's like 
brothers living together is like that dew settling on the hills of Zion. Now, dew is always a symbol in Scripture of God's divine providence and sustenance in people's lives. And through the months of May and October in, in Israel, in the Middle East really at large, there is, a, there is a, a, a drought. It is a yearly dry season. And in the fall is when you expect and you pray for rain. And that dew on Hermon is, is what keeps the grass alive in those, the particular region of the Middle East is the dew settling. And it's saying it's like that dew as if it were settling on Mount Sion, which is where the temple stood way down south. That's what it's like when brothers can live in harmony together. So it's like the eclipse of God's presence and God's providence on this mountain. It's a beautiful picture. For it was there that Adonai ordered the blessing of everlasting life. Wow, that's pretty profound, right? So brothers living in harmony together is like God's providence and God's presence being manifest in our space and in our time. That is magnificent. And you know, Matthew 5, 23, 24, Yeshua says, if you're going up to the temple to bring an offering... And you remember there that your brother has something against you, right? You guys are familiar with this? The Sermon on the Mount? He says, leave your gift there by the altar. Go and make peace with your brother or sister that has something against you. Then come back and offer your gift. You see, harmony between brothers and sisters is a prerequisite to you worshiping the Most High, apparently, according to Yeshua, our Savior. And your gift being accepted on the altar. And even to this day, if you come into this place and you come into this building and worship with other people or just out in the field or whatever, and you're trying to worship and you're offering a sacrifice of praise with your lips and you remember that that your brother has something against you, leave your gift, go and make peace and then come back and your gift will be so much more pleasing that way. But it's like seeing the very face of God. Verse 11. So please accept the gift that I have brought you. For God has dealt kindly with me and I have enough. Thus he urged him and he accepted it. Esau said, let's break up camp and get going. I'll go first. And Yaakov said to him, my Lord knows that the children are small and the sheep and cattle are suckling their young. They concern me because if they override them, even one day, then all the flocks will die. Instead, please let my Lord, Adoni, go on ahead of his servant. I will travel more slowly. At the, pl- at the pace of the cattle ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to the, my Lord in Seir, Esau replied. Then let me leave with you some of the people I have with me. He's thinking physical protection and security here. But Yaakov said, there's no need for my Lord to be so kind to me. So Yaakov left that day and returned to Seir. I'm sorry, Esau left that day and, and returned to Seir. Yaakov went on to Sukkot, where he built himself a house and he put up Sukkot for his cattle, shelters for his cattle. Now, is this the same Sukkot that the people of Israel camped at in Exodus 12? I don't know. But that place was called Sukkot as well. And uh, it says in verse 16 here, this is 17, this is why the place is called Sukkot, shelters. And that's where the name of one of our holidays, Sukkot, comes from because we're commanded to build temporary shelters, Sukkot, Sukkot. During the seven-day holiday, the Feast of Tabernacles, as it's called in English. Verse 18. Having traveled from Padan Aram, Yaakov arrived safely at the city of Shechem. And that means the shoulder. The shoulder. In modern-day Shechem, Shechem, 
is the city of Nablus in Israel today. City of Nablus. And you'll notice it says here in, in the land of Canaan, he set up camp near the city. Now, this is one of the, I think, three, if I'm not mistaken, pieces of property that are bought and paid for in the Torah. And it's explicitly laid out in the Torah. But one of the three most highly contested pieces of real estate in the land of Israel to this day. Okay, And you've got the, the Temple Mount is one of them. Shechem and the field of the cave of Machpelah or Hebron. Very contested areas even to this day. Even though the Torah says that they've been bought and paid for by the patriarchs of our faith. And it says, uh, from the sons of Hamor... Oh, pause a second. Anytime you see someone go to camp near or enter a city in the Bible, what's about to happen? Bad things. Bad things. Good, you guys are listening. From the sons of Hamor... Uh, he bought Shechem, uh, I'm sorry, from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for 100 pieces of silver the parcel of land where he pitched his tents. Then he put up an altar, which he called El Elohai Yisrael, God, the God of Israel. You see, Jacob's having a bit of a, uh, an awakening, isn't he? A little bit of an arrival, a bit of a revival. In, in Genesis chapters 31 and 32, we see Jacob fleeing his father-in-law's household in haste. Jacob and his entourage have a mini-exodus experience in which they suddenly leave, and they take with them large amounts of wealth. Does that sound familiar? Mm -hmm. They're even pursued and confronted, and there is even a golden calf or idol incidents. There's supposed to be some visible parallels there between those two stories. This lengthy 20-year chapter of Jacob's life it culminates into a single night in the dry riverbed of the Yavok, literally the dust, the dusty river. He's having his lonely, empty, and dusty come to Jesus moment. See what I did there? <laughs> Through this, he's reminded of who the sovereign really is. He's reminded that our material wealth and prosperity is dust. As Jacob and the man wrestle and stir up all this nostril coating dust, it becomes evident that Jacob's life, his decisions, and his very existence is a result of God taking the dust of the earth, forming Adam, and breathing into his nostrils the breath of life. Quick aside here, we, we must remember that Jacob thought he was wrestling who? Esau. Or uh, Patrick mentioned that last week. It's dark. Esau wants to kill him. He knows Esau is coming for him. And he gets jumped by a guy. <laughs> what would you think? That's my brother. But in reality, we got to remember, he was wrestling with who? Wrestling with God. Clothed in flesh. You see, we often wrestle with things in the physical realm, unaware of the fact that we are actually wrestling with God's will. So long story short, Jacob is humble. He's being equipped for this next set of struggles he's about to encounter. These next 20 years will be much harder and will require a deep sense of humility and connectivity to God's sovereignty. This brokenness and subsequent revival within Jacob's heart and household become more evident in chapter 35, if you read ahead, when he says in verse 2 of chapter 35, if you want to look at it with me, he says, Then Yaakov said to his entire household and all the others with him, Get rid of the foreign gods that you have with you. Purify yourselves and put on fresh clothes. 
You hear Jacob taking a stand for what is righteous. Jacob knows that there are foreign gods in his camp and he wants to get rid of them. He wants a fresh start, doesn't he? See, this is what we call a pivot point. Or in literary terms, a point of cruciality. Can you think of anyone else in the Bible? And you guys tell me, who had a significant pivot point in their life? Paul. Yeah, big one that I was thinking of. And we see the same thing. We see a period of, of, of uh, meeting God and then a point of loneliness and revival and realigning his expectations with God's. And then coming back in and saying, okay, now I'm on fire for this. Anybody else? Matthew? Yeah, a tax collector. Yeah, absolutely. Anybody else? Peter, yeah. Yeah, these points, these pivot points. Moses, yeah, good. Once you begin to look for them, you'll see them all over the Bible. Who? Gideon, yeah, yeah, good. Samson. Now, don't think that a pivot point has to always go positive. It can go negative. <laughs> the girl at the well. Yeah, you guys get the idea. Now, let me ask you, have you ever had a pivot point in your life? Have you had to stop and ask yourself the question, how are my decisions today affecting the lives of those around me in the present and in the future? That is such a big question that I try to get people to ask themselves sometimes. If you could project your life five years into the future, if Gabe Rutledge could see his life, if I stay on my current trajectory, what will that do to the lives of people around me? Does it look good or does it look bad? You see, animals don't do that. Animals think calories and survival and dominance and mating and all this other stuff. Humans think, am I in alignment with God's will? And how does that affect people down the road if I'm not? That's how humans who are made in his image should think. Now, I know the world and culture around us tries to get, get us to think calories, survival, dominance, sex, mating, all this. That's, that's what the world wants you to think about. We should be thinking, how do my decisions impact those around me? And that's a pivot point. If you come back and you say, it's not good, things need to change. That's a really big step in the right direction. But also in Genesis chapter 32 and 33, there's a prophetic element to this story. The prophetic picture is best summarized by a midrash, which states that during the night of exile, during the night of exile, the nations of the world and the kingdom of Edom wrestle with Jacob until the dawn of redemption. We could rephrase this midrash to say, during the exile of the descendants of Jacob, the people of Israel, the descendants of Jacob will wrestle with the nations, but in reality be unknowingly wrestling with their creator until the dawn of redemption. And in doing so, bring the nations into the knowledge of the one with whom they've been wrestling. In other words, Jacob's exile in Genesis 32 and 33 is coming to a close. And his real name, which has been his name this whole time, Israel, is being revealed to him and to the rest of the world. And so too, in those darkest and loneliest times for Israel, the people group, the nation, and the nations around her are being tested. This is such a foundational biblical principle, guys. 
It runs, this thread runs all through the Bible, the entirety of the Bible. It is a deepening, an ever-expanding cycle of exile, testing, humbling, redemption, and then exaltation of God's people, namely Israel. You see, Jacob the man has been Israel all this time and is just now coming to the realization of the remembrance or the remembrance of it, that I wrestle with God. I've been wrestling with God all my life. And maybe you are as well. But in his wrestling, he is both emotionally and he's physically broken. And the same is true for the nation and the people of Israel as they are scattered in exile. God echoes this very prominent trope in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 4, if you want to look at that, verse 27. Deuteronomy 4, 27. When, when you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth as a witness to, uh, to you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over to the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but you will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the nations and the peoples. And you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands, that neither see, hear, eat, or smell. But from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him. You will search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. And when you are in tribulation... And all these things come upon you in the later days. You will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. The Lord alone is God. Ask for the days that are the old ones, the past, which were before you. Since the day that God created man on earth. And ask from one end of heaven to the other whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or was ever heard of. And that's why when we close the Torah scroll, we put a Torah scroll away and we close the ark, we say, um, renew our days, the days as of old. And that's, he's saying, seek after the days that are past. God speaks to the cyclical theme again through the prophet Zechariah when he says, though I sow them among the nations... They will remember me in distant lands. They and their children will live and they will return. Ezekiel 6, again, speaks to this exilic cycle when he says in verse 1, The word of the Lord came upon me. He says, Son of man, set your face towards the mountains of Israel and prophesy against them and say, You mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God to the mountains and the hills, to the ravines and to the valleys. Behold, I, even I, will bring a sword upon you. And I will destroy your high places. That's where there was a lot of idol worship going on. I will destroy your high places. Your altars shall become desolate. And your incense altars shall be broken. And I will cast down your slain before your, your idols. And I will lay the dead bodies of the people of Israel before their idols. And I will scatter your bones and around your altars. Wherever you dwell, the cities will be wasted. And the high places ruined so that your altars will be wasted and ruined. And your idols broken and destroyed and your incense altars cut down and your works wiped out. And the slain shall fall in your midst and you shall know that I am the Lord. Verse 8 is really important. Yet I will leave some of you alive. 
when you have among the nations some who escape the sword, and when you are scattered throughout all the countries, then those who escape will remember me among the nations where they were carried captive to, how I have been broken over their whoring heart that has departed from me, and over their eyes that go whoring after their idols, and they will be loathsome in this sight, in their own sight, for the evils they have committed, for all of their abominations. And they shall know that I am the Lord. I have not said in vain that I would do the evil to, this evil to them. So this narrative we read in Genesis 32 and 35, it hints towards this prophetic, exilic, restorative cycle that is still unfolding to this day. But it also speaks to an individual cycle that you and I must sometimes experience, right? You see, there's so much potential for God to move when we are empty, when we are exhausted, and we are covered with dust, isn't there? It is said that an unbroken man needs a full cathedral to be inspired, but a broken man sees the face of God in everything. I like that quote. We, as followers of Yeshua, we should desire brokenness and humility. What is a moment rhetorically speaking, in your life, when you were exhausted, when you were broken, and you were covered with dust. If you haven't had one of those moments, maybe you need one. What brought you to that moment? And what happened in the few days afterward? For some, it may have been brought on by a tragedy. It may have been the loss of a job or incarceration, an injury or relational strife or abuse. There's a myriad of things, guys, that can break and humble us. It is what we do in those moments that make all the difference, right? Too often we buy into the notion of the American idealism and pride. I don't show brokenness. I don't show humility. The gospel of Uncle Sam says you need more. Your worth is based on your accomplishments or your acceptance by others. And you are ultimately, you are the arbitrator of your life and your destiny. But the overarching message of the God of Israel in the Bible is that you are but dust. You are nothing without his providence. It is in a life of humility and a constant awareness of your sins against an all-powerful creator that the seeds of redemption and repair, in Hebrew we call it tikkun, can be sown. And those fruits, the fruit of that, the fruit of that forgiveness can be experienced by those around you. Too often people walk through our doors here at DMF and they're just looking for more ammunition to put in their theological belt. more so than they want to hear the truth. And the truth is this. We are broken and we are in need of a Savior. If I stand here today or any time and I teach you amazing biblical facts or Hebrew insights, which are good in their own right, yet I do not constantly remind you that knowledge puffs you up and that, and if I don't constantly remind you of the simple truth, that you are broken and in need of a savior, then I have failed. The apostle Paul got this right. 
and is evident in his letters to the Philippians. If you want to turn there, Philippians chapter 3. I was sitting out in the woods with Stacy last week, and we read this together, and it really spoke to my heart. He says, If anyone thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I, Paul, have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, I was like blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of just knowing Christ as my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the Torah, from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his suffering, becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Wow. Anybody in here meet any of those credentials? <laughs> How much more so should we live in a deep humility and longing to be caught up in and in, in, in union with Yeshua's suffering? So in closing, we all need to be aware of our propensity to become prideful. We all need to know that the Bible is a book that is centered on the sacrificial death of our Savior, Yeshua. And we all need to be able to identify that Israel, both the man and later the nation, is the vehicle of this redemption. And God has not, nor ever will, forget his promises made to them. Though we both may go through times of testing and trial, these should be viewed as opportunities for re refinement and growth. James 1, you guys know this. James 1 says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And we should be able to look back at our lives and see these clear pivot points where we made very desperate and life-altering decisions. And if you cannot pinpoint a moment like this in your life, or many of them, then I'm going to beg the question that maybe you need one. And if that's you and you need humbling, then let's pray. Father, I pray that your Ruach would move, your spirit would move amongst the hearts of the people sitting within the sound of my voice and move within the heart of Gabriel Rutledge, who is a broken sinner of a man. Father, that you would put us in a constant state of remembrance who you are and your goodness and your righteousness and your perfection. And that even despite knowing our hearts, you let us live. Father, I pray that if there is anyone in this room that has yet to pivot their life and orient it towards the sacrificial death, burial, and resurrection of our Savior, Yeshua of Nazareth, that they would do so today. That they would confess their sins and they would profess Him as their Savior and their Lord and their Master. 
I pray all this in his matchless and beautiful name. Amen. Amen. Michael, uh, you want to do the Quranic benediction today? You want to get ready for that? I don't know where he is. Or Gabrielle or Sophie, if you want to join him or something. So guys, we got just a couple minutes. If you have any questions or comments that you want to add to the discussion today about Genesis chapter uh, 33 or anything in Genesis, questions. I know you're like, wait, they ask questions here? They want us to ask questions? Yes. I think great learning can come through inquisitiveness. I'm not saying by opening up for questions I have the answers to those questions, but I will do my darndest sometimes. But yeah, Brenda? So Esau, when he passed, in generations and generations, they're still in that same frame of mind? Still in that state of hostility, yeah. Why do you think? Is it in the blood? Is it hand down? Did they talk well, about it? Do you remember what was told to, to uh, Rachel? That there are two nations in your womb. Oh, Rebecca, thank you. There are two nations in your womb. Your womb. So it's God's will. Yeah. Yeah, I guess it's God's will. Why, I'm not sure. But that they would be in a constant state of hostility with each other. Um, Even after they kissed, Yeah. Yeah, that's a good question, though. Thank you. Anybody else? I was just thinking, um, right in the same vein as what you're talking about, we uh, just run by and see all these parallels and uh, stories that we contrast, and uh, it repeats itself over and over. Sometimes it's a little different, sometimes it's a very close to And we see two men, we see uh, Joe, who was, he had everything taken away from him. And then, of course, the dad, who was, was your favorite, he went through all these things. So we see Job, and then we see Ecclesiastes uh, and Solomon about everything, right? Materials uh, speaking. Um, and with these, we can contrast and look at the ending, and they both essentially come two different stories, two different lanes of the road, but they come essentially to the same conclusion, which mm. is the fear God, follow his commandments, and this is the beauty of the beauty of man. Yeah. Um, said a little bit differently, but it's just interesting how we can all Yeah, he's good. Yeah, he's, for those who couldn't hear, he's talking about the book of Ecclesiastes and the story of Job and how they kind of went through similar things but eventually come to a pivot of a final realization of this is the, the essence of life. Purpose of life is to fear God and keep his commandments. So I saw, I think I saw a hand over here, but I definitely see Greg. Did I see a hand over here? No? Okay, Greg, you're next up. That's, uh, that's one of the most often repeated phrases in the Torah, especially Deuteronomy. The whole theme of Deuteronomy is remember. 
Remember what I did for you. Remember the covenants. Remember the commandments. Remember the promises. Remember the blessings. Remember the curses. So much as a remember. Um, it's important that we remember as well our great redemption, our salvation. Um, there's so much opportunity for distraction in the world right now, isn't there? And we can be enticed into different things and want different things or hobbies or wealth or different aspirations that we might have. But it's, we have to remember, remember, remember. Not that those things are necessarily bad. It's just we can use them as means to forget our Redeemer. So, anybody else have a question? Brian. One thing, uh, Esau says, hey, come to see here with me. Jacob really has no Yeah. And, uh, so I wonder if that kind of plays into you know, uh, Esau sitting in the air. He's like, man, it's been like two months already. He stood me up. He ghosted me. Yeah. Brian was saying, you know, Esau says, let's go to Seir together. But then Jacob never really does. And maybe he's saying maybe that plays into the hostility that they will have for generations to come. That he like, ghosted him or deceived him again. Yeah. Good. Anybody else have a question, comment about Genesis? Nobody? Yes, Marcus. So Jacob approached Esau with humility. Mm-hmm. And he was then embraced, like they embraced his brother, saying, let's uh, break over the blood of this thing. Let's, let's get over this. He followed me, but then Jacob doesn't follow through on me and Esau. So what was going to stop Esau from still killing Jacob, even though he was I had a hard time hearing you, but basically you're saying what would have what would have stopped Esau from killing Jacob had he done things differently? Nothing. I mean, he probably would have killed him. I don't know. But maybe it was the procession of the the, the, hum, the humble procession going out before him that that realized, wait a second, my brother Jacob is in a, in a different place here. And he's approaching me with humility and servitude, and therefore I will spare his life. Maybe, is that kind of answer your question? Did I understand the essence of it? Okay. Cool. Anybody else? Let's take one or two more questions, and then we'll call it a day. How about that? Anybody else? There's somebody there. They just want to raise their hand. Awesome. Well, your homework for this week is to read Genesis chapter uh, 34. And... Uh, Go ahead and read 34 and 35. I think we might be doubling up on chapters next week. And we're going to get through, uh, we have about 15 chapters left in the book of Genesis.